Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good afternoon in what I suppose is chilly Stockholm, Sweden, where once again we're joined by Johanna Malm, formerly Johanna Janssen, uh, who is a PhD candidate in International Development Studies at Roskilde University in Denmark. Uh, a very good afternoon to you and welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Well, if Johanna's on the show, that means that we're talking about either one of two things. It's either Gabon or the Democratic Republic of Congo. Johanna, if uh, you'll remember for longtime listeners of our program, is really one of the leading Sino-Congolese experts uh, and has spent a lot of time doing research in the Congo and really understands the, the, the relationship that's been evolving over the past 10 years there. And the reason why we've had her there, is be, we're having her on the show today, is because over the past few weeks in the Congo, there's been a surge in tension and a rise in what some are calling xenophobic anti-immigrant violence directed specifically at the Chinese. So we're going to talk about that. But before we get into the what happened with the Chinese community there, we're going to let me just first kind of set up the the background of the politics that sparked all of this. Now, this is uh, the the events happened on the 19th and 20th of January, where an estimated uh, let's see, almost 42 people were killed in the violence, and that all violence was sparked because of a law that's being making its way through the National Assembly to really upgrade and modify the election law. And what they want to do is they want to put forward a census, in part because the Kabila administration says that the voter rolls are out of date. Now, for anybody who's lived in, the, in, in Kinshasa or the Congo, it's really laughable because this is really not a functioning government by any traditional means. And so what a lot of people are supposing is that Kabila is using this tactic in order to extend his term in office by another term, which he's not allowed to under the Constitution. He was elected in 2006 and again in 2011, and that should be the end of Joseph Kabila, uh, who's been in power actually since 2001 when he took over from his father, Laurent Kabila, who was assassinated. Well, all of these changes and these proposed changes that are making their way through the National Assembly really pissed off a lot of people who really are angry that they feel it's a power grab. And what ended up happening was thousands of people took to the streets, uh, particularly in Goma and also in Kinshasa. Again, as I said, it left dozens dead. There was a lot of widespread looting uh, and, and just a lot of violence. Now, Kobus, there was something very interesting about this violence. Normally, we wouldn't talk about domestic and political unrest in the Congo, but there was a lot of anger specifically directed towards the Chinese. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, Chinese shops became the target of of looting, and a lot of these shops were destroyed. Um, there was no reports of actual Chinese of Chinese people actually dying, or none that I've seen. But there were there were a few the possible injuries, um, and the Chinese embassy eventually actually moved about 180 um, Chinese merchants to safer parts of the city. Um, and, uh, you know, now the Chinese government is calling for calm and calling on the, the Democratic Republic of Congo government to make sure that Chinese citizens are, are, are being kept safe. So it, it definitely seems like this. there was this interesting shift in a, a domestic protest suddenly turning on this minority merchant community. So, Johanna, when you read the news of this, what was your what, – what did you think was the reason why 
the protesters turned specifically on the Chinese. As you know, in Kinshasa, the Chinese are not the only immigrant community there. There's a large Lebanese population there. There's a large Angolan population. There's other immigrants that are there. Why the Chinese, do you think, were the, the subjects of this attention? Well, I don't know if any property of, of any other immigrant group was actually looted. Um, but but I would think, I mean, I have visited some of these Chinese shops out in the cité, in the townships. And um, they really, I mean, they have friendly relations to the population. But I think, and as, as also happened in, in Soweto and is happening in South Africa regularly, uh, unfortunately, that successful immigrant entrepreneurs, you know, are their properties are looted because it just creates resentment that they manage to, because they have trader networks, because they have that kind of, of knowledge and skills, they are able to make money. They work very hard, but they make some money, and that, I think, creates resentment. Now, I don't think that's specific to the Chinese. I really do think this is the dynamic of of, of successful driven foreigners enter a context where maybe lack of skills on, on how to run an enterprise, lack of entrepreneurial skills, um, I think that's what creates it. Well, you know, kind of it's it's interesting to compare it to South Africa because it is this weird overlap because in the same week that this that this happened in, in the in the DRC, there was similar riots happening in Johannesburg. Um and you know, kind of in, in Johannesburg in the, the South African case it was a case of someone it's it's still a bit murky, but like a, like a young man got shot. Um, the the shopkeeper said he was he was busy. He was trying to rob him, and and um, and you know, kind of community saying he was he was shot. I think with without provocation, and that then led to a riot and to the looting also of immigrant shops, as you as you said. The difference in South Africa is that it wasn't one population group of immigrants who were targeted. It was Somalis, Bangladeshis, and Pakistanis, um, all being being kind of looted at the same time. Whereas in Kinshasa. It was. It seemed to have been mostly the Chinese community. It was. Now, um, Johanna, let me put a theory that the Mail and Guardian Africa put out there. And they said that they specifically – one th- again, this is just a theory and I'd like to get your take on it – that because Kabila has made no secret of his fondness for dealing with the Chinese who have done billions of dollars in resource deals – with, uh, with, with the Congolese, with the Kabila family, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars from the Chinese have supposedly made it into Kabila's pockets through bribes and whatnot, that by targeting the Chinese, it sends an indirect message to Kabila uh, to express their frustration, that there was a specific choosing of the Chinese community because Kabila has made uh, quite a bit of money through the Chinese. So what's your take on that? Yeah, I don't know. I would have to speak to people to see whether that's the case. Um, I do know that there's a lot of conflation between um, what SICU means, so this big um, infrastructure uh, financing arrangement that's linked to a mine. Um, it's been a lot of confusion between Sikumin and what the small-scale merchants are doing. I remember first time I came to Kinshasa, the driver I had, I, and I told him I was researching Chinese activity in Congo, and he said, Oui, on a laissé entrer les Chinois pour construire des routes. Pourquoi ils vendent des beignets dans la, dans la cité? <laughs> that means um, we let the Chinese come in to build roads, but why are they selling donuts in the township? So there's this idea that, I mean, and I think it's quite widespread, the idea that um, that Chinese, everything Chinese is related. So 
yeah, mailing guardians, they may be something to it, but I can't say whether or not it's the case because I I don't know. It yeah. may also just be frustration that there's foreigners that that have better, basically better incomes, um, that because they manage to run businesses in this environment. And I think also there's, I mean, Chinese community are helping each other, so they manage to perhaps find ways to to do business that. Other Congolese may not. I don't know. It's just difficult without knowing um, to say. But it, it's it's it it could be. You know, elements of it. Could yeah, be. I was I was also I you know I was also wondering about that theory because you know the the main deals that the Mail and Guardian was was setting up as examples were years ago. You know, kind of. I mean, most of those big deals happened in the late two thousands. You know, kind of. Um, and so I was wondering why it suddenly erupted now. Um, well, it also, erupted. I mean, no, we know why it erupted now because of the. Yeah, yeah, of I mean, the law. Yes, but but I mean you know kind of I mean there are lots of lots of different kind of like triggers. I mean it's 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 you know if you're unhappy and you're looking for for you know an excuse, uh, you know to to write and you happen to be living in Kinshasa, I think there are lots of reasons, you know, um, or lots of lots of things that that would be able to trigger it. Um, the other thing I was wondering was you know South Africa also has a very very close very kind of high level you know relationship with China. Um, the 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 difference I, I can see actually it might be geographical in the sense that I don't. Know know that there's actually so many Chinese shops now in the townships in South Africa as there used to be. Um, because I think that, you know, as I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not hundreds since I'm not an expert on this, and we need to get more people in to talk about this. But as I understand it, um, the Chinese community in South Africa have, have like started retreating into big Chinese malls. So there's all these these massive kind of and very securitized malls um, catering to to traders and being run by the Chinese community all over Johannesburg. Well, I don't know that they, I don't think they're doing as much street trading anymore. Okay, so this is something else that the Mail and Guardian picked up. And let me give a quote, and then I'd like to get Johanna's take on this. Uh, the Kinshasa residents also resent what they see as the Chinese preference for sticking together in segregated communities, retaining their customs, habits, and language from their native land, end quote. Now, what I found interesting in Kinshasa was I, and again, I may not have seen it, uh, but when I went out to the various neighborhoods, and I actually went out, the most of the violence happened in Kalamu and Ngaba, and I went out there, and I didn't see big clusters of Chinese communities. They actually lived kind of dispersed and spread out, and the shops were spread out. There is no kind of Chinatown in Kinshasa. So I found that quote from the Mail and Guardian a little bit unusual. From your time in, in uh, Kinshasa, do you do you do you did you see those clusters where they were kind of these isolated communities of Chinese? No, I think what they what they may be referring to is you know that that the Chinese tend to go to the Chinese restaurants and they tend to socialize with each other and to go to Chinese bars and sing karaoke with each other. It it may be that uh, what they are referring to. It's funny, don't you think the white aid workers do the same thing? Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think it's kind of weird a, to me. But but those are not easily looted, or they don't uh, live among people. I think you have you really onto something there, Kobus. And I think the Lebanese community, for instance, is completely different because they have big businesses and and nightclubs and and you know it's a completely it's a different um, type of economic activity that they engage in. I I also I find that charge so unfair. Yeah. Because yeah, I think it's a BS <laughs> you know, charge too. In the first too. place, I mean. 
Yeah, you know, kind of. I mean, I'm just back from Guangzhou, um, and you know, kind of, we went to to all to several of the of the African enclaves in Guangzhou, and it's exactly the same situation. It's all of these African people living together, going to the same restaurants, listening to the same music, you know, eating the same stuff. So it's like, you know, kind of, it's and very few of them seem to have really super integrated into into Chinese society, and very few of them fully speak Mandarin, like you know, kind of on a on a kind of native level. No, but so it's I, a I garbage. That, that, it's know, a it's a garbage claim from the journalists who are writing this because those yeah. journalists live in the walled compounds with other white people and go to the same. I mean, I know it because, A, I've, I am one of them. B, I've been there. Uh, and, and it's the nature of first-generation immigrants anywhere in the world. I'm here in Vietnam. Guess what? I live with other Westerners. We go to a lot of Western. I don't speak to – I don't speak Vietnamese that well. I'm not fully assimilated at all. Uh, it's the nature of any first-generation migrant. And so I think it's a bogus charge towards the Chinese who oftentimes, as Johanna said, are selling beignets, opening local businesses, are far more assimilated in Africa than the Western elites who sit in their walled compounds with their you know $100,000 Land Rovers. Um, let me try to put this into a bigger global context. And, and Johanna, this is really going to touch a nerve with you, I think. Um, so we've seen these, you know, xenophobic kind of tendencies happening in Africa. This is not new. Idi Amin did it 40 years ago. Uh, you know, it really shows that Africa in many ways is part of the rest of the world. Uh, in, you know, up where Johanna is in Sweden, there's been the rise of the Swedish Democratic Party, which has made its advances largely on an anti-Islamic, anti-immigrant platform. We're seeing in Germany right now large protests in the city of Dresden against Islam and, and immigrants in general, mostly Turks. Uh, in Paris and in France, the, the, the ghettoization of migrants, the Tea Party in the United States, anti-immigrant movements in Japan, a crackdown on immigrants in China, uh, you know, toughening visa rules and whatnot, ethnic tensions that have also popped up there. There seems to be, uh, you know, maybe not a rise in it, but certainly a bubbling in it. And I'm going to put to you... Uh, Johanna, the idea that this may have nothing to do with migrants, it may have nothing to do with the politics, but it may have a lot to do with rising inequality, political alienation, unemployment, poverty, corruption, the, dis the distance between the elites in places like Kinshasa and the people who feel that billions of dollars of development uh, aid is coming in, billions of dollars of resource deals and loan deals are coming in, but nothing is making it down to the people. So at the end of the day, what we're seeing in Sweden may be very similar to what's going on in Kinshasa, which is just a frustration with the economic system. That's a big question, and, and I'm, I'm actually just about in the process of trying to grasp what's going on politically in my own country. Um, I think in terms of the riots that we see in, in, in South Africa, and I mean, this, the ones in South Africa are the ones I've been thinking about, and, and these ones in Kinshasa. And I think I read an article where Peter Draper from the South African Institute of International Affairs said something very, um, very pertinent, and that's what I alluded to earlier, you know, that these immigrants, they have social capital, or they have trading skills. I mean, the Somalis in South Africa or, or Chinese that have connections to Guangzhou and they trade easily. I mean, Congolese women do also go to Guangzhou to to purchase and, and other Congolese merchants. But this is the thing, when somebody comes in with skills in a context, as you say, Eric, where local people are not able to access proper education, they're not able to access basically anything at all. And in, this, in the South African context also where... Um, 
people are still loyal to the ANC, even though the ANC is not delivering because people don't see that they really have a choice. They cannot stop voting for the ANC because apartheid is kind of not over or it's it's a complicated political situation to make sense of and you're suffering and then you get frustrated because other people seem to succeed whereas actually it's your own context and and Lindy Wizulu the, the South African minister said that you know these traders they have to share they have to share their 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 trading skills basically and I think that's quite an interesting uh, remark because that's what people feel, I think, and it, it, but it also it's also possible that part of the what the frustration in Kinshasa was due to the kind of close link between the Chinese, as it were, and and Kabila. So I think those two factors explain it. Now, as regards Sweden, I don't know if it's the same thing. I mean, it's it's frustration and the idea that the foreigner is kind of taking over. But yeah, I wish I could explain what's going on in my own country. I cannot. Yeah, you know, it, in in the African context, my my feeling is also that it's it's part part of it is this kind of belated shock of of have of of being the the kind of trauma the traumas of of being integrated into global capitalism to a certain extent, um, you know, because this you know that that certainly in the in the South African case it seems to me it seems to me the case you know kind of the. I think one one issue is that being poor and especially having been poor under apartheid, a lot of people were also kind of isolated from the world, um, because obviously you know poverty is a kind of an isolant. Um, so now they're kind of face to face with these people, with these these migrants from other places who they need to now compete with, and these migrants are, as as Joanna said, is they, they they integrate into global networks. So there is you know kind of this kind of struggle with what it means to be part of the global economy. I think. Um, you know, so you know, as, as you said, this this idea that these people have to have to share their their trading skills, which in any kind of capitalist context is this laughable idea that I have to teach you to be better at business so that you can then beat me at business. You know, um, whereas you know, kind of, I think I think it, it makes kind of more sense on the ground from the context of these people who feel that they are marginalised within their own society. Um, so I, I think you know, to, to sound like super gas baggy academic, you know that there is this kind of overlapping of the global and the local. Um, but, you know, kind of, I, I don't know enough about the context in the Congo to even know how these people, like the the, the, the people who target the Chinese, how they are actually articulating it to themselves. Yeah. You know, kind of, so, so I have a kind of a big, like, Congolese shape hole in my understanding about how this, this is actually understood there on the ground. Well, that's fair enough. And, and anybody who studies the Congo, much like anybody who studies China, has to go into it with an enormous amount of humility uh, because it is a very difficult place to understand. I think, Johanna, you'll agree with that, that it's a, a very complex place uh, very with a lot of ambiguities to it. Uh, Johanna, thank you so much for joining us. We know that you are on mother's duty right now, and so before the little one wakes up, we wanna, we'll want we let you go. But uh, we did want to thank you for, uh, for your time today to explain this incredibly important issue, in part because it's really part of a bigger context. Once again, 40 shops were looted. About 180 Chinese were a move to safety. Uh, three injuries, there's what reported. But let's not forget that 42 uh, Congolese died in these riots, which in some ways is far more important. Uh, given the loss of life. and uh, But this is an issue that we'll continue to watch throughout 
Africa as potentially um, Chinese become the, the, the subjects of more either xenophobic or politically motivated violence uh, towards them. Uh, just an interesting kind of wrinkle in all of this. One thing we didn't touch on this was the diplomatic reaction. Uh, Kobus, we'll get to this in another show, but it really, one interesting point for me was how the Chinese embassy took a more proactive role in, in, in moving those 180 to safety. And that's been one of the complaints that Chinese merchants have had for a number of years, that the embassy wasn't there to protect them. We've run out of time today, but we will bring that up in, in a future show. Johanna, you are, are expecting some very hopefully good uh, news in the next few months that when you go to defend your, uh, your, your PhD. So we wish you the very best of luck for that. Thank you very much. And Kobus, uh, you've already defended your PhD, I assume, right? Yes. Yes. So ago, you're yes. on the. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and I don't have one, so we'll say that for now. But it's my retirement plan to go and get a PhD. So that'll do. It's what I'm going to do later in life. It's, it sounds like the worst possible retirement in the world. <laughs> it, it seems very romantic to me, but maybe by the when I'm actually in it, and I think Johanna is going to tell me not to do it because it seems like a very painful process when you do it. Uh, but until we do that, Kobus, what's the best way for people to follow what you're reading and writing these days? You'll see me on our Facebook page. That's uh, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Tweeting out the top China in Africa headlines almost every day. And uh, also just want to let everybody know, finally, our new newsletter is going to be launching. Uh, we're launching a weekly kind of wrap of the top China Africa news stories. It'll be five stories sent out every Monday. Help you get your week started on some things to think about and some talking points on China-Africa relations. Hopefully, Johanna, you'll you'll sign up for it. You can just go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Uh, just sign up. It's all over the website. You can put your name in there and your email address, and we'll send that out to you every Monday morning, uh, starting next week, actually. So we're really looking forward to that. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, best way to do it, just go over to iTunes, search for China-Africa Project, and we'll come up right there. And also, we beg, we plead, please leave a comment, rate it, because it helps us uh, become more visible to other people on iTunes. So until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>